So the world must look different when your days are numbered. I don't, I don't know if it's a, a blessing or a curse to see it coming. The end of all your days, death. But it, it's what he sees up ahead like debris floating down the Tiber River to Rome, death coming his way. He's not all that old. It's not like he's dying of disease. It's not like the doctors have done all they could do or that the cancer is too aggressive. There's no grim diagnosis or stage four or anything. Instead, it's been decided that he should die. And his days on death row are drawing to a close. 2,000 years later, Timothy McVeigh asked for two pints of mint chocolate chip ice cream, John Wayne Gacy deep fried shrimp, KFC, and a pound of strawberries. Joseph Mitchell Parsons, he asked for one last walk under the stars and to watch science fiction films. But Paul? 2,000 years ago, asks for his coat, his books, and especially his papers, his last personal request. The air is hot and humid. The sun is beating down. The mosquitoes relentless. Whether the chains feel heavy around his wrist or whether the irons leave bruising on his skin, we cannot say. What are the conditions like? Are they sparse with a few comforts of house arrest or Roman military custody? Or are they deplorable, really, really bad? Is he shackled in place or chained to cruel guards? How are the accommodations? Overcrowded, dirty, rank, putrid, really, really gross? With the stench of urine and excrement splattered across the dirt floor? How's the darkness, the psychological distress, the malnutrition? No three hots in a cot like McVeigh, Gacy, or Parsons. Food only comes when friends show up with it. How's the emotional trauma, the social shame and isolation, the nearness of death? The world must look different when your days are numbered. I imagine things like self-preservation must seem awfully important. And then there's the self-pity and the regrets and the fear, anxiety, uncertainty, the worry. But I, I don't quite get that sense from Paul, especially as he writes to Timothy, I solemnly urge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he comes to set up his kingdom, preach the Word of God. It's not save me, rescue me, get me out of here. It's preach the Word of God. And today, as our sermon series draws to a close with this final chapter, so too is Paul's life. This is 
the last chapter. These are the last words Paul writes in Scripture. And as this church leader, this missionary, this apostle, genius of the faith, who once tried at all costs to put it to death, as he writes his final chapter to his protege in the faith, Timothy, there's no hint of self-pity. There's no regret. His last word is a word of encouragement to all who follow. He faces death without fear and without doubt. The race is over ahead, awaits his reward. But what follows, it doesn't quite sound like the words from death row, from a man facing the end. But instead, these words are the words of a man eagerly looking forward to the beginning, where, as C.S. Lewis put it, there are far, far better things ahead. Any we leave behind. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we lift you high. We give you all the praise, the honor, and the glory. For the breath of life in our lungs, we are grateful. And now as we turn our attention to your word, I pray that it would take root in our heart, that we would understand these words in a new way, that even over the expanse of 2,000 years, it still can sink home in our lives today. Help us to preach the Word of God and hope in you for all our days. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I solemnly urge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he comes to set up his kingdom, preach, that means declare, announce, proclaim, deliver the word of God. So scripture, God's will and God's way. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not, as the Greek says, in season, out of season. When, when the place is packed or when the chairs are all but empty, when they're engaged and hanging on every word or, or when they're busy checking fantasy football scores or last minute Black Friday deals, here's what you do. Patiently correct. That doesn't sound like fun. Rebuke even less, and encourage. Okay, I mean, that, that part's easy, but patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. So I've been to some churches where it is nothing but correcting and rebuking. And you, you, you leave feeling like punched in the gut and kind of worthless, it's like they forgot about that whole patiently correct and rebuke. And then encouragement is nowhere to be found. And that whole bit about speaking the truth in love, like it is absolutely missing. But on the other hand, I've been to other churches where it's like nothing but encouragement. And that may seem really good, but the encouragement that is offered is so superficial and fairy tale-ish, like potpourri trying to mask the stench of what's really going on. 
Like, what, what, what is this? Just some pep talk? They'll take a verse like uh, Psalm 139, for instance. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. But God forbid the preacher actually finish the psalm where it says just a few verses below in verse 19, if only you, God, would slay the wicked away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. We need it all. We need it all. Teaching and preaching that's well-rounded and willing to deal with the whole cornucopia everything, not just the flowery verses that we frame and place above our fireplace, but the sticky and gritty stuff of the Old Testament and the tough passages of the New Testament too. Preach the Word of God and all of it. Preaching is God talk. Preaching is God talk. It's God's talk to us and, and our talk about God. We preach because God speaks. And, and faithful preaching is speaking what God wants to say in the power of the Holy Spirit, not just what we want to say or what we want to hear. You know, it's not stand-up comedy. Sometimes it might feel like that. But it's not a lecture either. It's not a, a TED Talk or ways to improve the new you. It's God talk. Our talk about God and God's talk to us. And it's verbal and it's auditory and even more so, it's flesh and blood and bone action. Do you realize that my sermons are to be judged by the quality of disciples that my preaching produces? My sermons are to be judged by the quality of disciples that my preaching produces, and receiving the gospel. You know, when we pray that prayer at the end of the service, like, Jesus, would you come into my heart? I believe you died on the cross, and you rose from the grave, and, and all that. When we receive the gospel, the saving activity of God throughout all time and space and history, which climaxes in the death and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and beyond, this receiving the gospel, it demands human enactment of the gospel. It demands discipleship, the flesh and blood and bone activity of chasing after Jesus. Salvation that, that Jesus offers is a new vocation. It's a new life. It's a new calling. It's a new mission, not just a ticket to heaven. And Jesus's message is one of summoning. Come on, join, take part in God's reclaiming of God's creation. And it's really strange. Whatever Jesus wants done in the world, for some reason Jesus chooses not to do it alone. But he includes us, as Paul says, to preach the word of God with our words and with our lives. And how we speak and how we receive and how we live, verbal, auditory, physical, spiritual, emotional, psychological, it makes all the difference. Do you realize that, that, that your job here on Sunday 
Your job here on Sunday is just as important as mine. Your job here on Sunday is just as important as mine. We are both to speak and receive and live out what God wants to do in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not just what we want to say or hear or how we want to live. And in each Sunday's sermon, the church is reminded about who we are and whose we are and to whom we are to be accountable. But watch out. Verse 3 says, For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. You know, Jeremy, he's just not as funny as Jeff. Sure, I'll give him. He's quieter than Kim. But he just doesn't have that same power that Kim brings. And compared to that dude on YouTube with the stadium size amphitheater bigger than Dodger Stadium, I mean, we have a plethora of options to satisfy our itching ears. But, but Paul, Paul says uh, those, those folks who like prowl around seeking their own desires, their itching ears, they will reject the truth and just chase after myths. A person emerged from our church a few Sundays ago and saying to me at the door as she left, I know that you wouldn't intentionally hurt anyone by what you said from the pulpit. But I was hurt by what you said in your sermon. And I thought, where in the world did you get the idea I didn't want to hurt you? Like, I'm a preacher. Infliction of pain comes with the job. And now, of course, I didn't say that because I'm not a jerk. But I'm supposed to talk about all the things we've been avoiding all week. And to be gut-wrenchingly honest, I love Jesus more than I love you. I love Jesus more than I love you. I tell that to my wife all the time, too. My kids, yeah. They're sick with hand, foot, and mouth. I love Jesus a lot more than I love you guys right now. But I, I, I do. I love Jesus more than I love you. And because I do, or try to, it helps me to want the best for you. To tell the truth, even if it makes me unpopular. And that's just the strange, awkward thing about Christianity in America today. It feels like everyone just wants to be an Instagram celebrity. I'm like, what? I thought we're supposed to follow Jesus, not you. And yeah, we can learn a lot from, from these people who look great and have good things to say. But if it's just about making me look popular and lifting myself up in my own brand, like what? Jesus was not about that. But, but since I love Jesus more than you, uh, it, might make, it might make me unpopular. My main task is not the avoidance of pain or to try and like quell all disagreement and conflict. Sometimes conflict is good. That's how, how 
how diamonds are made, right? Under pressure. My main task is to participate in the mission of Jesus, to engage the conflict that comes with the gospel's interaction with the world, rather than getting bogged down on internal congregational squabbles. It was Luther, after all, who compared God's word to a surgeon's scalpel. It's not about pleasing the itching ears or satisfying customers. Preaching has to do simply with our words, but with the word of God. It's a sever. It's a scalpel that severs our settled arrangements. It's not a, a word of our own concoction. And to receive that word is sometimes to be in pain because of it. As Luther said, here's a word that first kills in order to make alive and damns in order to bless. Preaching is just like surgery. Or sword fighting. I don't know about you, but I have yet to stab somebody. I figure it must hurt. Probably not the most pleasant experience. Sometimes, though, church, even when it's done in truth and in love, sometimes it can hurt. After all, Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Cutting and exposing. Hmm. That doesn't sound like fun. But when it's done in truth and in love, and when we don't just run and get defensive or immediately offended, but we actually learn. It's like cutting away cancer or cutting away cysts, or like liposuction. But in our culture, I wonder how much of our teaching and our preaching has become sugar-coated or, or solely just politically motivated or financially motivated. And we contort our words to appeal to whatever the itching ears want to hear. And we end up just manipulating the entire situation. Preaching is weird. You want it to connect. You want it to hook and engage and sink in and be effective and life-changing and all of these things. But when we do it apart from God and apart from the Word of God, or when we try to finagle Scripture to say what we might want it to say, it's empty and it's breathless. As Kim put it last week, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. For a time it is coming, and it's probably already here, I think, when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. Like, I don't want surgery. I want a second opinion. I want to hear what confirms, not what challenges every one of my preconceived notions or political opinions or whatever makes me feel not so bad about my sin. In preaching, I got to switch uh, mics here real quick. So in preaching, you'll know that it's not you'll know that it's not the gospel if it tries to offer a formula for living for Jesus without discomfort. Discomfort comes with it. 
And in the face of all my attempts to make Jesus more comforting and more comfortable, I hear Jesus ask, what about the cross do you not get? But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Sounds about as fun as correcting and rebuking and cutting and exposing. But you know, ask, ask the persecuted church in China. Ask those suffering for Jesus in North Korea or Afghanistan or Somalia, where Christians are hunted for their faith, where Christianity only exists in secret, where police raids and persecutions are commonplace. But against all odds and logic, something is galvanized in us when we suffer for Jesus. Weird, right? But the evidence shows that there's this strength, there's this confirmation, this solidifying effect where Christianity becomes wildfire under pressure. If you want it to grow, if you want it to grow, outlaw it. Seriously. The problem is when it becomes nationalized, like in 313 AD with Constantine, when Christianity is legalized and becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire, it peters out and the wildfire becomes a flicker. In a strange way, when Christianity is, in a sense, domesticated, we become cultural Christians, lackluster and lukewarm Christians who don't really know what Christianity is or means it's something of like a heritage or just a lousy, meaningless tradition and not a mission that is far more important than anything else remotely related to anything else. When Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire in 313, paganism overwhelmed it. But wait, wait, it's the official religion of the empire. Paganism overwhelmed it. You know why? Because it became hard to distinguish who the true Christians were. Because people were claiming to be Christians everywhere. It was domesticated, cultural, state religion. Many so-called Christians were just simply practicing pagans. Practicing in pagans, uh, in, indulging in all kinds of immoral behavior inconsistent with the way of Jesus. Yeah, but I'm, I'm a good person. I go to church. Oh, oh great. So, so you must totally understand that the church isn't just a place you go. It's a mission you're on, and it's far more important than anything remotely related to anything else. You ready to suffer for it? Oh, well, I, I just thought it was like a belief, like moral guidelines or something. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. I, I'd like to think that I'm not, but when have I? like ever. Just before midnight, my Uber driver, Berkett, picked me up at the Raleigh-Durham Airport in North Carolina. 
And we small-talked our way along the highway, cutting through the forest of dark, tall trees. And I, I can always talk soccer with foreigners. But after our small talk, I asked him, I asked him, uh, wh where are you from originally? And he said, Eritrea, uh, north of Ethiopia. And I had a, a globe growing up. And I memorized all these like countries and locations around the world. And I knew it was Northeast Africa, majority Muslim population, totalitarian dictatorship, where human rights are among the worst in the world. And of course, where Christianity is outlawed. So here I am alone in the middle of the night with a complete stranger in the middle of a dark forest. And I knew the next question would be, and here it comes, so what do you do? And I said, construction. <laughs> no. No, I said, I'm a, I'm a pastor. Silence. Protestant, he asks. Uh, yeah? Yeah. Silence. I ask hesitatingly, knowing the answer is going to be uh, no. But I ask, do, do, you, uh, do you go to church? Oh, yes. But my pastor back home has been in jail 20 years. No kidding. For, for what? Preaching the word of God. Turns out Eritrea is number six on the list of most dangerous places to be a Christian. In the remaining 20 minutes of our drive, I learned that Berkat was a, a refugee who had come to this country with his family seeking political asylum. He works at a convenience store by day, and by night, he Ubers to support his wife and kids. He spoke at length of seeing God's hand in creation, the beauty of the moon on the waves, and a lifelong dream to see the Pacific. I learned so much in such a short amount of time about Jesus and being unafraid to suffer for him. And when I stepped out of the car, it was bittersweet. I was encouraged. And embarrassed. Embarrassed at how my refugee Uber driver was blown away that we Christians here in America have all the freedom in the world to read and study and live out the Word of God and don't. But Paul writes, work at telling others the good news. It's not just from the stage or from the pulpit. It could be in an Uber, or, or at the dinner table, or at Target. It's about preaching the Word of God with your lips and with your lives, and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. Raising kids, going to school, working at the 7-Eleven, or a law firm, or the job site, or wherever you may be. He continues, as for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death 
death is near. The Roman emperor Nero is about to separate Paul's head from his body. Regardless, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. Paul's saying, I'm about to die. My life is an offering on God's altar, like, like a priest pouring out wine for a whole burnt offering. This is the only race worth running. I've run hard to the finish, believed all the way. All that's left now is the shouting, God's applause. And that's what we're after, right? All that we do is for the applause of nail-scarred hands. That's the goal for what it means to preach the word of God. And now Paul, he gets into personal matters because preaching the word of God is personal. Verse 9, Timothy, please come as soon as you can. Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life and has gone on to Thessalonica. Dang, Paul, Paul does Demas dirty here. Like, bro, you show up in the Bible as the dude who deserted Paul. Sad part is, if it's the same Demas, probably is, but we don't know for sure, for sure. But if it is, he gets mentioned in Colossians and Philemon as a trusted friend and co-worker of Paul. But something changed. And it causes me to wonder if the whole first part of this chapter is about Demas and Paul's experience. Paul tells Timothy, watch out for dudes like Demas. Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life. Maybe he wasn't down with the whole patiently correct and rebuke and encourage stuff. Maybe, maybe he's no longer listening to sound and wholesome teaching. Maybe he's following his own desires. I mean, Thessalonica is vastly populous and wealthy. Maybe he's looking for teachers who will tell him whatever his itching ears want to hear. Maybe he's rejecting the truth and chasing after myths. Maybe he's afraid of suffering for the Lord. But why is it that whenever I read the Bible, I always assume I'm like David, a man after God's own heart. I mean, before the, you know, he hooks up with some dude's wife and then has him murdered. But why do I always assume I'm like Joseph, the golden boy, or Elijah, who's, who's willing to stand up against pure evil, when in reality, I'm a lot more like Demas, I'm in the back of an Uber, and I have no clue the magnitude of your faith. Sure, I get up on Sundays, and I engage in God talk, and I'm trying to break free from domesticated Christianity. I don't want to be a cultural Christian. I don't want to be lackluster and lukewarm, but that pull to chase after the things of this life is strong. But in the end, it's never fulfilling. Never fulfilling like living for Jesus. Don't be like Demas. Instead, preach the word of God. Fight the good fight. Finish the race and remain faithful. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus, a trusted and valuable companion, has gone to Dalmatia. The, the situation, it seems lonely because to preach the word of God sometimes is a lonely ordeal. 
uh, most of Paul's ministry team has either deserted him or they have uh, gone on to new assignments. But Paul isn't completely alone. Verse 11 says, only Luke, the physician, and as tradition goes, the author of the gospel of Luke and also Acts is with me. Bring Mark when you come, for he will be helpful to me in my ministry. But it wasn't always so. Mark deserted Paul on his first missionary journey. He left him. But that's the beauty of preaching the word of God. You get to see transformation in your life and in the lives of others, and sometimes even re-transformation. Mark goes from deserter back to trusted friend. That's what happens when you faithfully preach the word. I sent Tychicus, one of Paul's letter carriers, to Ephesus. When you come, be sure to bring the coat I left with Carpus at Troas. Winter is coming, and sometimes it can even snow in Rome. Also bring my books and especially my papers. This is his last written request. Not mint chocolate chip ice cream. Not one last walk under the stars. But here, my books and especially my papers. Why? Well, maybe he intends to write more, to preach more by doing this. Verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. And sometimes that's how it goes when you preach the word of God. Paul wrote in his first letter to Timothy that he handed over Alexander to Satan. But Alexander was once a trusted and loyal companion. Now he's a bitter enemy. But check out what Paul says. It's not, forget that guy. He's a nasty fill in the blank. No, Paul writes, but the Lord will judge him for what he has done. Be careful of him, for he fought against everything we said. The first time I was brought before the judge, no one came with me. Everyone abandoned me. Losers! Can you believe they call themselves followers of Jesus? No, Paul doesn't say that. Instead, he writes, may it not be counted against them. Sounds a lot like Jesus, abandoned at the time of his most need. But here, he prays like Jesus that it won't be held against them. But the Lord stood, against, stood with me and gave me strength so that I might preach the good news in its entirety for all the Gentiles, non-Jews, to hear. And he rescued me from certain death. Yes, and the Lord will deliver me. The Greek is ruamai. He will draw me to himself and for himself. And now that's a strange way of thinking about deliverance. He will draw me to himself and for himself. It's not necessarily just out of the conflict or out of the disagreement or out of the trial or out of the difficulty or out of the pain, but drawing me to himself and for himself, delivering me from every evil attack and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. All glory to God forever and ever. Amen. And this is all coming from one in chains with his head on the chopping block. Give my greetings to Priscilla, the female authoritative teacher and house church leader and host. Oh, yeah, and to her husband, Aquila, too. And those living in the household of Onesiphorus, the supporter of Paul beside Timothy in Ephesus. Erastus stayed at Corinth. I mean, he's the city treasurer, a pagan convert. 
And I left Trophimus sick at Miletus. He's also not a Jew. And his presence with Paul has actually led here now to Paul being in chains in Rome. It caused a riot back in Jerusalem. So he just leaves him sick, I guess, at Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus sends you greetings, and so do Putin's. Linus, Lucy, Charlie Brown, and Pigpen, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters, may the Lord be with your spirit, and may his grace be with all of you. And these are the last words of Scripture penned by Paul. His dying wish, his solemn urge in the presence of God to Timothy and to us, preach the word of God. The other day, I heard someone preach the word of God. She said, I'm so sorry you guys are going through this. How can I help? Run an errand for you? Drop off dinner tonight on your porch? I saw someone preach the word of God. He went over to the neighbor's house. She's like 90-something. It was 2 or 3 in the morning, and the water was coming through the electrical outlets. I smelled someone preach the word of God. She sat next to a woman who, I don't know, hadn't showered in months or maybe had a leaking colostomy bag. And she sat there engaging, loving, not repulsed by any means. Because either she has no sense of smell or more likely she knew that Jesus is never repulsed by anyone. I tasted someone preach the word of God. Pumpkin pie, homemade. It had to have love and prayer baked into it because each bite took me far, far away from the house of sickness I was living in. I felt someone preach the word of God. And it wasn't so much in a sermon as it was in a text message. So grateful for you, man. You've been such an amazing friend, more than you could ever know. And at the end of the day, isn't that what counts? How we preach the word of God with our lips and with our lives. You know, the world must look different when your days are numbered. But thanks be to God that with this mission, every life is worth living and every death is worth dying. Because the God of Scripture, the sort of God who came back to us at Easter, has this wonderful way of showing up as we thought the story was ending. And by showing up and continuing the story, giving the story a more interesting ending than the drama would have had, this God who raises the dead, he enlists us to play a part in the drama and gives us something good to do in his name, to preach the word of God. And as Martin Luther put it, how difficult an occupation preaching is. Indeed, to preach the word of God with our lips and with our lives is nothing less than to bring upon oneself all the furies of hell and Satan and therefore also of every power of this world. It is the most dangerous kind of life throwing oneself in the way of Satan's many teeth.
but that's the good fight.